Good morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time again for Focus. Today, we're going to talk about health maintenance at the different stages of your life. And we have an expert, Dr. Chris Holloway. He's a family medicine specialist. He's with Family Practice Associates at the Crossings in Antioch. In case you'd like to look him up later and ask him about anything you heard on the show. Welcome, Dr. Holloway. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So uh, I guess we'll kind of start uh, at, at the beginning when okay. we've got babies in the family. What are some of the things that people need to know about what we should be doing at that point? Well, usually after a baby's born, after they leave the hospital, it's recommended that they visit their pediatrician or family doctor because we're interested in nutritional habits. We're interested in the habits that we will set them up on that will affect their the remainder of their life. Like what? That's actually a really good question um, because there's so many different ideas, whether it's cultural or... Um, so everyone has maybe a preconceived notion, maybe based on um, the way they were raised. Sure. Um, and sometimes there can be a bit of confusion about how often you should feed the baby, what you should feed the baby, when do you introduce solids, et cetera, et cetera. And so visiting your family doctor or your pediatrician is a good idea at, at each stage of the baby's life to review um, nutritional habits, also vaccinations as well. There's a lot of different controversies surrounding vaccinations. And so the relationship that you have with your family doctor is important for discussing those, um, clearing up any wrong thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, everyone's on the same page that we want that baby to get off to the best possible start. Dr. Holloway, I think a lot of times the confusion comes from what we've heard from older family members. It kind of starts there, and they say, well, I got a flu shot 40 years ago, and it made me whatever, and I got sick right after. And I think people hear that, well, my grandmother said such and such, and she died. or what. Right. And I think it comes from previous generations, and I think people are not taking into account how much medicines change. That's right. How much the whole world of medicine has changed. That's exactly right. You mentioned the flu shot. The flu shot seems to be the enemy of us all, at least. That's what people think. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, the way people feel, for instance, after they get the flu shot, it's kind of true. You do feel a little more inflamed. Mm-hmm. But there's a medical reason, there's sound logic to why, but ultimately it's not dangerous for the masses and ultimately it's most protective. And so we need to kind of have an open forum, open discussion about that where we can clear up some of that wrong thinking. So when you get the flu shot, for instance, what we're wanting it to do is to turn on your immune system, to um, beef up your protective antibodies. So if you actually do come into contact with the germ, your body's in a position to fight it off and hopefully protect you from getting the flu. So like I said, you become a little more inflamed and that feeling is what causes you to feel a little more achy or a little more prodromal. But it's not giving you the flu because it's not a live vaccine. And that's the type, those are the symptoms that we want to discuss with patients and to clear that up so they know the flu shot does not give you the flu. It just kicks in your immune system. Exactly. And now you know, hey, it's activated. That's right. Ow. That's right. So that's exactly, that's how you know it's working. Yeah, okay. Doesn't feel good, but it's working, and ultimately it's in your best interest. You threw in a doctor word there. You said Uh-oh. if you feel... Uh, prodromal? Yeah. Uh, is that the word? Okay. Um, so a prodrome is just the symptoms that show up on the scene before the actual illness you know, fully manifest itself. Is that what you physicians are able to see? Because I know a lot of times uh, doctors say if you come down with the flu, try and get in fast and we can give you certain drugs and it might help. 
Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, some conditions have really specific symptoms that mm-hmm. kind of clue us into what's going on. Other times, those symptoms are, are really nonspecific. And, but nonetheless, we can put the entire picture together and hopefully come up with a proper diagnosis. That's good. I like how you said that, to put the entire picture together right. and thus the, the importance of building a strong relationship with your doctor. Very true. Okay. So we've got the babies into the doctor. We have the guidance from our physician on, on uh, nutrition and the vaccinations that they need. Then the child gets a little older, gets ready to go to school. Where, where are we at that point? What should we be doing at that point? Every year we're making sure that they're up to date with their vaccines. As they grow, we're also wanting to make sure that their weight is within an acceptable range so that they're not undernourished, but that they're also not overnourished. So we want to see if there's any risk factors for obesity, um, and we can kind of counsel on nutrition at that point. Okay, Dr. Holloway, why is it so important that we get kids on the right track uh, with nutrition and exercise and all that? Why? focus on them at such a young age because people are posting pictures all over social media. Oh, here's my fat little baby. Look at those precious arm rolls, you know. <laughs> That's right, and they are very cute. Um, but it's it's very well known and it's established in the medical literature. You know, they're cute and they're laying there and they're feeding and they're growing. But we know that the nutritional habits and the vaccine habits are going to set the foundation and really the health course for the rest of their lifetime. And so it's important that we get that early start and we get that early opportunity to clear up any vaccine misconceptions, any nutritional misconceptions and it gives us a great opportunity to partner with these families, hopefully for the lifetime of their child, um, to partner with them so that they can get off to the best um, start. Well, not only the best start, but then that's right, the best and life. continuation. Absolutely. I I have a friend who is a mom, and she posted something about there was a baby in line at the grocery store screaming because her mom wouldn't give her candy, and she said, "My child won't eat candy." She begs for, like, broccoli or something, or carrots. She loves carrots because they're so sweet. And so I just thought, what a different mindset that is. That is. And it is a different mindset. My mommy didn't do that. We had to clear our plate, clean our plates growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm meeting this community of parents now that are completely shaping the palate of their children based on the food that they give them. So instead of craving, you know, bad sweets or bad foods, they're developing a palate um, for things that are more nutritious and helpful for them. Are we doing better on that? We're more informed. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're more informed. We kind of know what to do. We know what to do, but doing what we know to do is kind of where there's the biggest gap. Usually that's true, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. I know what I should be feeding my <laughs> that's kids, right. but I'm in a hurry and we're going through this drive-thru. I know what to yeah, You got it. <laughs> but you can even make good choices even at the drive-thru. True. Um, but we're also looking at what are the different risk factors at each stage. So, for instance, before they, you know, if they're about to start elementary school, we want to look at what are their typical illnesses that occur, what are the typical accidents that occur at that stage, and we can give them some preventative-type counseling. Example, wear your seatbelt every time you get in a car. When you're riding your bicycle, make sure you're always wearing your helmet. If, you know, making sure um, that children know how to swim, you know, if they're, especially if they're in and around water. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at what are the typical 
perils that occur for that particular stage, and we're trying to be proactive with it. What are the most common things to hurt children, for children to become injured? Yeah. So, you know, a kindergartner, we don't typically hear of a kindergartner having a stroke or a heart attack, but maybe there's an accident that occurs, um, a traumatic brain injury, riding a bike without, or riding a skateboard. Kids are riding scooters these days, and or the hoverboards, for instance. Broken bones come with, you know, riding a hoverboard without a helmet, um, without elbow um, protection, without knee protection, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, drowning accidents or injuries. Kindergartners, you also want to monitor screen time, um, the types of things that they're watching on TV, monitoring the content and things of that nature. Why is monitoring their screen time important at such a young age? Yeah. It's kind of become a babysitter for busy yeah. parents. They're, they're, I'm not judging. I'm oh, just we're just I'm just absolutely. laying out the facts. So why is it important? If we compare things we had access to when we were at that same stage, there's there's so much more that they've got access to now, whether it's the Internet, whether it's social media, um, the music they're listening to. There's cyberbullying. And I, I just think as parents, um, they're using this technology. But I think we want to be sure that they're using it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to be um, not necessarily censoring it, but we need to be providing just some oversight. So if conversation needs to take place about the things that they're watching, things that they're listening to, so that we can... Um, provide some context and that we can provide context really to what they're watching and listening to. So they don't think because they've seen this so much, this is normal. Correct. This is how things are supposed to be. That's right. When it might be bullying, it might be inappropriate content, things like that. You have to give some oversight and give some guidance to them. That's exactly right. Have we found links with screen time and obesity? Do you know? With more kids now, this computer generation that we have right now, they're spending more time in front of the TV and less time outside playing. Mm -hmm. And so that minimizes opportunity for exercise and activity in general. Okay, so we get the child off to kindergarten, get them into school, and then are there certain things that start to affect them more as they get older, like into the teenage years? Oh, absolutely. If you're just joining us, uh, I'm Anna Marie, and this is Focus. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Holloway, family medicine specialist, and we're looking at health maintenance at the different stages of your life. Okay, so now we're up to the teenage years. Oh, Lordy. Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) That's such a fun stage. I mean, because teenagers. Did you say that? I did. I have a teenager at home. Teenagers teach me how to better relate to my own teenagers, so it's kind of training on both sides. (laughs) Teenagers are becoming young adults, and they've got so many decisions they've, they've got to make. I mean, they've got decisions that they've got to make regarding drugs and alcohol and substance experimentation and vaping. And again, it's um, social media, um, sexuality. So there's a lot of different opportunities that we have to intervene, to educate, to ask questions. Vaccination discussions never goes away. Nutritional counseling never goes away. Um, recommendations for exercise never goes away. Body image issues. Bod- absolutely, body image issues. And so really, I really relish the relationship that I've, I have with my teenagers, especially the ones that I've had since they were, you know, infants, um, because I have a platform being their physician. And oftentimes, you know, the parents will leave the room and we can have a frank discussion and just being that authority in their life. We can have an honest dialogue and it I may be saying the exact same things that their parents have said, but I'm their doctor. Um, and so there's times when they might listen to me or or at least take into consideration things that I would say that might hopefully positively influence some of the decisions that they'll make. 
What are some of the things that teenagers have questions about that they question their doctor yeah. about? Yeah, vaping. Substance abuse. Um, everybody's asking about marijuana use and CBD. Um, so the kids is, are going to their doctor yes, and asking are. about marijuana they, use. They are. What do they want to know? Um, so particularly with CBD. So some are more are admitting to marijuana use, first of all, recreationally. Um, and they are admitting to that readily um, yeah. and without hesitation or reluctance. Um, but more are asking about CBD, um, the cannabis, can't CBD, let's just leave it at that. More, <laughs> more are asking about CBD yeah. um, and its uses and its safety. Well, I would. <clears throat> that's something that I would ask about. Yeah. So what do you tell people when they ask about CBD? What well, do we know about it? Well, it's kind of a wide open field right now where not a lot is known. And so what you're seeing um, on social media, what you're reading about that's purported to be true might not necessarily be so. And so what what we have to be guided by at this point is the evidence and the science and the literature. And we know that there are some clear medical benefits to using CBD where it does have some medical benefits, but a lot of the other benefits, while it's touted, it might not be true. It might just be good marketing and branding. Because I have seen, yeah, I have seen people post stories online about a, a, a anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, anti-everything. Anti yes. CBD, Absolutely. I swear by it. Yes. So it, I guess it wouldn't hurt to ask your doctor about it because Absolutely. it is available online now. Where yeah. People can just go you buy You can it. buy any product in the store. store and on the shelf that might purport to be you know, the answer to every problem. But if it's not been studied, if if there have not been any well-designed studies to prove the whatever they're claiming, I think mm -hmm. we have to use those products and, and consider those products um, with a weary eye. Mm -hmm. With studies like that, probably, I would assume they're coming down the pike. Hopefully. That since it is becoming something that's more often used right. by the general public, right. I hope there are studies being done so we know about whether it's going to work and right. whether it's going to be safe and how much is going to be safe and That's what it's right. going to be used for because I could see doctors prescribing it. If it's another tool, perhaps later on. At this point, it's too soon. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's you know the stores that sell these products have popped up on every corner, but it's too soon. I mean, just like vaping, we've got a little bit of information. Um, we've got information that raises concern with you know using vaping products, but it's just too soon for us to recommend people use these products. We don't, I don't have anything that I say that it's, I don't have any good hard and fast data to say that it's safe. And so what I'm telling teenagers, number one, obviously, along with the guidance of their parents, is we, we have to be informed consumers. Um, and we don't want to be too quick to use all of these products that are available. What about mental health? Yeah, that's, for that's a big teenagers one. and young adults. Yeah, that's that's really important. I mean, especially with the heightened rate of suicide, mm -hmm. um, especially in Williamson and Davidson County, and I, and I think that's something that we need to be a little bit more sensitive to. Everyone's aware of suicide, the suicide rate. Everyone pretty much knows someone in their school that's either attempted or committed suicide, or even in their families. All of us, not just the physicians, but everyone has a role in, in really 
being aware of the mental health of their, their child or family member. And we need to be screening for it and we need to be listening and we need to be connecting them with resources that are available, um, especially during that teenage years. Um, I know the providers in my group, particularly whenever we have anyone, not just teenagers, but especially with teenagers, when we have someone coming in the office and if they're expressing thoughts of depression or if they're having thoughts of suicide, everything comes to a screeching halt. And we make every effort to connect them to the resources that we can that's going to help them. What kind of resources are there? Um, we've, we've got inpatient resources. We've got um, suicide hotlines. Um, we've got, obviously, medications are at your disposal. We've got counselors. Um, we've got psychiatrists. We've, and, and we've got, it, when you're not even sure, we've got mobile crisis that can come to the office and do a higher-level screening to help us to better ascertain the risk um, that the particular patient has of harming themselves or even harming someone else. So we've got resources that are very much at our disposal. You know, something that I'm, I'd like to lay out to you and see what you think about it. But I know for a long time, we've called a phone number to call when mm -hmm. you're having a hard time. Yep. It's the crisis line yep. and the mobile crisis yep. unit. And I feel like a lot of people, by the time they feel like they're in crisis, it's yep. too late. Sometimes. I think a lot of people who are, who yeah. really could use uh, some help to get through a really tough right. time. That's right. But don't feel like, well, I'm not in crisis. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're exactly right. There are those who will cry out, and they they might do a better job of articulating their situation. But it's just as many who never present to a healthcare facility. And again, it's everyone's responsibility. I just think we as a community need to walk through crowds a little bit slower. And, and, and feel each other a little better because we have opportunities every day to hopefully positively impact someone and let them know no matter what they're going through that their situation matters. How do you do that? Just like I said, you walk through crowds slower. Um, you we're make all an in eye a rush. contact? Yeah, we're all in a rush. We're all busy. We all have our agendas. But just taking the time to smile, just taking the time to hold the door for someone, realizing that the way someone presents themselves at that moment might not be the real them. They may just be having a bad day, even if they may be abrasive, even if they may say something that's a little hurtful. But just offering yourself for a moment. Sometimes it only takes a moment. Sometimes it takes a little bit more time. And sometimes it might even be a personal inconvenience. But again, I think given the heightened rate of suicide and depression in our society, each of us we're not necessarily medical professionals. We may not be psychiatrists or psychologists, and we need to realize that so we don't overstep our boundaries. But we could very well be the link to helping someone get the help that they need, whether it's a neighbor that might seem a little bit more withdrawn or just paying attention and just, again, just walking through crowds a little slower. If you're just joining us, I'm Anna Marie, and this is Focus, and we're talking with Dr. Chris Holloway, a family medicine specialist, and talking about all of us having that responsibility to look out for our neighbor a little bit more. I had an experience that taught me that lesson a while back. I was ringing the bell for the Salvation Army, the Red Kettle. Thank you. And oh, Thank you. And a lady's walking in. I was at a Walmart or something, and a lady's walking into the store, and I just looked up at her, and I said, hi. I said, have a wonderful day. You know, good morning. Have a wonderful day. And she stopped, and she looked at me, and she just looked me in the eyes, and she just stared at me for a minute. And I said, can I give you a hug? 
And and she said, yes, please. And I hugged her and she just started crying. Wow. It was like because somebody was there and smiled at her right. and spoke to her. She got a little bit of comfort. Right. And I didn't change her life, but I helped for her that through moment. that moment. For that moment. That's exactly right. So just walk through crowds a little bit slower. That's right. I love you, man. I love you. Well, I think that's awesome what you did. Just in the right place at the right time, that's I think. That's right. You know? But also being available at that moment. And be available. That's a choice. Okay. So now um, we're on past the teen years, and we're all still healthy, and we've stayed. How, how, many, how often should we see our physician? They're at the very least annually, but yes. depending on if there are any chronic conditions that might need management, sometimes as frequently as monthly or quarterly. And I think it also depends on if there are any health goals that we're working towards that might also influence the frequency of visits. Uh, so it's individualized. Yeah. It's individualized based on stage, age. But again, if you're working towards anything specific with your physician, that'll influence the frequency. Okay. So is it for accountability <clears throat> or for follow-ups and for to, to keep track of medical condition? All of that. Okay. So now we're on into adulthood like the 20s and 30s when a lot of people feel like they're just at their healthiest they don't need a doctor haven't been to a doctor in years is there something they need to be doing yes they need to be visiting their doctor i think i I probably thought that way as well when i was in my 20s um i have a lot of patients that come and they say, I, f- I feel great. I don't need a colonoscopy. I would know if something was wrong. I know my body. And it gives us a great opportunity to persuade them otherwise. Um, we all know, and most of us believe the mantra, that early detection is the best detection. And hopefully, there will never be anything to be found. But if it is, it gives us the greatest opportunity to intervene. Hopefully, if there is anything to be found, um, we can find it at the earliest possible stage where it will cause the least bit of damage to the patient. And the least bit of damage from the treatment. Exactly. Because if you wait until something is kind of taken over somewhere, that's going to be more invasive. That's right. And longer recovery. And that's more right. Expensive, or you find some little something right. that you can take care of easily. You said it well. Thank you. Can you call me doctor, please? I'm, I think I might. <laughs> sure. What else do we need to kind of start taking care of as we get to be... Hmm. You know, in our 20s, our 30s, moving on into our 40s. Vaccination recommendations never change. And with each decade, there are some new vaccinations that might require a booster or introduction. Like what? Um, so, for instance, in your 20s, um, we will get a booster of your tetanus shot. Um, if you've never gotten your Gardasil vaccine, which helps to prevent HPV, there's an opportunity for that. There's also a new meningitis vaccine that's been introduced within the last several years that if you haven't received, then assessment will be taken and you might be. Um, and eligible for that as well. And then in your 30s, 40s, 50s, when you get in your 50s, we talk about possibly a pneumonia um, booster um, as well as a shingles vaccine. And then different conditions along the way, If depending on your, your disease states, if you're immunocompromised, there are other ones that you could get maybe at an earlier stage. Um, now, you said a pneumonia <clears throat> booster. Yes, booster. What does that mean? Does that mean you've had it before and yeah. you're getting it boosted? Correct. Um, babies, um, during their primary series of vaccinations, they receive Prevnar, which helps protect them against um, a strain of pneumonia, which can lead to um, 
pneumonia. Um, and so I said in the 50s, but you can get it earlier mm-hmm. um, at certain stages. We want to boost or refresh that level of circulating antibodies. So if you're exposed to that germ, you've got a fighting chance to prevent yourself from actually contracting that disease. Why do you need to have a boost? So does your body quit producing those yeah. antibodies? Well, over time, the level of protective antibodies might wane. You know, they might lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want a, a certain threshold level of antibodies mm. So because we know that it's not arbitrary. We want a certain level of antibodies, which we know um, above which you stand a, a fighting chance to protect yourself from contracting the disease. Like after you get your flu vaccine and you feel all of that stuff kick yep. in and you realize, okay, now my immune system is kicked in and I, and I am... Are you at your strongest? That's at least that's what we're hoping. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of weeks after getting that vaccine. You clearly stand a better chance as opposed to not getting the flu shot. Well, yes. Right. But then uh, I mean say say if I got one flu shot and then like 10 years down the line my m- body not might not fight it as strong. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even if we're the same strain, same Even everything. if that's But exactly the flu right. strains change. They do. They evolve. So that's why we have to keep on. Every year. Yeah. That's right. You can't go, I got one in 1987. Um, okay, so we've, we're getting all of our vaccines. And Correct. then what about tests that you're supposed to start getting at certain ages, yeah. uh, scopes and yes, tubes exactly and right. things? Right. And so, you know, we talk about 20s, 30s, 40s. Over the decades, we're always assessing for obesity, nutrition vaccines. We talked about that's not changing. Exercise recommendations during every physical, we're reviewing those, answering questions. And it, you talked about accountability. We're also wanting to make sure that our, that we're staying with the program. You know, mm-hmm. life changes, life if obligation changes and pressures come that sometimes will get us off track. Um, we, colonoscopies, typically we start screening for that in the 40s and they're guidelines. So things can always change based on um, health history, family risk factors, which might influence whether we do it a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we start prostate screening between the 40s and 50s, again, depending on um, family history, depending on symptoms. Um, mammography for females starts at least in the 40s. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Bone density, looking for um, osteoporosis. Um, we start talking about that in the 50s as well. And I failed to mention, very important, um, lab-wise, we're, we're screening um, for diabetes with the blood work, and we're also looking at your cholesterol, since that has such a huge impact on your future cardiovascular risk. Wow, there's a lot there to is a keep lot. our eyes on. That's why you need your family doctor. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you find that if you could just tell all of your patients, here's what I wish you would please remember. This is Dr. Uh, Chris Holloway, a family medicine specialist. What would you say? What do you think we all really need to hear? I think what everyone needs to hear, um, what we put into our bodies is, is huge. It's paramount. Nutrition, paying attention to nutrition and not just the ingredients of the food, but the quality of ingredients, that is so closely tied to the future of our health, the amount of exercise, maintaining as healthy a weight as possible. Mm -hmm. Those things are so important. And so I think it's great. I have patients that come in every year. They get their physicals. They get their lab work. And they're very diligent in that regard. But it's a little harder sometimes to change the way we eat. It's a little harder um, when you have very busy lives to get outside and exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think partnering with your healthcare practitioner to set 
baby steps initially towards those goals. It's very important. And, and those habits are ultimately what's going to predict a healthier future. Um, nutrition, exercise, minimizing exposure to certain chemicals, bad habits, smoking, um, overindulgence in alcohol and other illicit drugs. Those are the things that ultimately are going to predict a healthier future. And that's what you want. That's what you want. Absolutely. You're our doctor. You want us to live a long time and come see you every year. That's what I want. (laughs) Thank you very much. Certainly. Thanks for having me. Dr. Chris Holloway, family medicine specialist. If you want to get in touch with him, he's at Family Practice Associates at the Crossings in Antioch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Jay Phelps for producing today's show. We're going to post it on our Focus Facebook page so you can check it out there and share it with friends. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or have ideas for future Focus programs, things you'd like to see us talk about, make sure you put it there as well. Make sure you join us again next week. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus.